0: Good morning again. Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to reach underneath the seat in front of you. Matthew 2 can be found on page 784. For the past few weeks, Matthew's gospel has been preparing us for Christmas. We looked first at the roots of the Messiah, his genealogy that tells us who he came from, And then we glimpsed glimpsed Joseph's reaction to the angel's strange announcement explaining how Mary, his fiancée, got pregnant. Last week during Lessons and Carols, we used that same passage at the end of Matthew chapter 1 to notice the two names given to the Messiah, first Jesus, which means the Lord saves, and then Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Which means God with us. The first one will tell us what he will do. The second one tells us who he will be. We just heard uh, from Juan through the Gospel of Luke the account of Christ's birth, which is very helpful because Matthew spends all of half a verse mentioning that Jesus was born. He's more interested in emphasizing all the other details. But Luke provides a little bit of the context. And then Matthew where we'll pick up this morning, hits the fast-forward button after Jesus was born, and gives us a scene that happens months and months later. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, the beauty of the season is rooted in the beauty of Your Word. History made, history defined, history bookmarked, in the sending of Your Son. Give us a fresh glimpse of what may be a familiar passage. We pray that Jesus would be exalted in His name. Amen. Uh, First thing we'll look at this morning is the wise guys, these magi. You know, when you think of a typical children's Christmas pageant, you have your requisite kids wearing lamb pajamas and the floppy ears looking all cute on the stage. And uh, those are convenient because they give the teachers uh, a number of rolls to dish out, right, uh, for the kids who just have to stand there and smile and look pretty. But not a single Bible verse tells us that there were any animals present. We just don't know that. It's, it's possible, uh, especially because there was no room for them in the inn and they might have been given the stable out back, but we just don't know. We don't know that uh, all the little animals that you set up around your Christmas tree or some of you on your front lawns were there casually munching on hay when the Savior of the world was born. We just don't know that. And then there's also the Magi, dressed like kings, with flashy threads and funny-looking hats, carrying gaudy presents. Who were these people, really? Too much of what we think we know from these scenes come from songs and plays and nativity scenes that we set up, but all too often they tend to mislead at least slightly. The only thing we uh, the only reason people think that there were we three kings of Orient are is because they were three presents: gold, frankincense, and myrrh. but all the Matthew, uh, the gospel writer Matthew tells us is that they're was more than one wise guy. That's all we know. And it's not likely that they were kings. The Greek term magoi referred to wise men, priests, sorcerers, astrologers. These were people who looked to the stars, people who performed divination. They interpreted dreams. They studied sacred writings. Some of them even performed magic. Not exactly the type that you would think would get Invitations to God's great reveal of the climax of his salvation plan at the manger in Bethlehem. That actually points out yet another misunderstanding of these magi. They were not present at Christ's birth. You should be holding them in the box and then bringing them out at least um, around epiphany. Uh, it was it six days later. Um, but Joseph and Mary probably stayed for quite a while in Bethlehem after Jesus was born. And if the star appeared around the time of Jesus' birth, and if these wise men were looking to the skies for signs and left immediately, it would have at least taken them weeks to arrive in Bethlehem. Verse 11 gives us more clues that they visited the family in a house, not in a stable, not in the actual site where Jesus was born. Where do these wise men come from? Matthew simply tells us in verse 1, "...from the east." The best candidates were Persia, Syria, or Babylonia. And the last one's especially interesting um, because that's where Israel spent years in captivity under the Babylonian Empire, where these scholars who studied sacred writings would have been exposed to the Hebrew Scriptures. Why would they have left home to travel west to come to Judea the Old Testament book of Numbers gives us a great lead. Uh, there was a, an enemy of Israel named Balak of Moab, and he summons this sort of shaman, this um, this wise man. In fact, um, the, the person he summons is Balaam, a pagan figure that Balak wants to bring to come and curse Israel. He's got some powers, Balak believes. In fact, later on uh, in the early centuries after Christ, the Jewish historian Philo refers to Balaam as a magus, the singular of magi. So if Balaam is one of the magi, this is what the Lord enables him to prophesy ahead of time. Numbers 24, starting in verse 15, the Lord, uh, the prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel, a ruler will come out of Jacob. Ancient rabbis and the Dead Sea Scrolls, among others, saw this prophecy as messianic. They believed that Numbers 24 was speaking of the coming Savior, and so no surprise if these magi coming from the east had this text in mind and were looking to the skies when the climax of all of history, the birth of Jesus the Messiah, got their attention what's the significance of all this? Two things we'll highlight. First, uh, full humanity. Full humanity. One of the things we noticed in the genealogy in chapter 1 was what I'll call grittiness. There was a messy family tree behind the coming of the Savior. Nothing prim and proper. His ancestors were a messy bunch, not a succession of cleaned up and dignified men and women. And Matthew chapter 2 does nothing to change that sense. So let me briefly summarize the early life of this King of Kings, the Messiah. This Jesus was born in relative poverty, in a stable, to young travelers who had no place to call home even for one night. The Messiah was born under a tyrant's rule, with a government filled with incredible drama and intrigue. The beginning of chapter 2 shows us the political maneuvering and deception. Herod is sitting in this palace comfortably in power, and these wise men show up, and their question is basically, oh, king, can you tell us where the real king is? What an insult. What a threat. And uh, what a challenge to power. That leads to incredible violence and injustice. In the later part of chapter 2 that we haven't read, Herod realizes he's been tricked. And in order to eliminate the threat, he orders the execution of every boy in Bethlehem and its surrounding areas, two years old and younger. He draws a wide circle in terms of age just to make sure that this threat is gone. This is war. Babies snatched from their mother's arms and murdered on the spot. But Joseph's warned by an angel, and so the family flees to Egypt, where the Messiah's toddler years are spent as refugees, perhaps homeless for a time, certainly strangers in a foreign culture. Does any of that sound familiar in today's world, for some of you personally, for all of us when we open a newspaper or turn on the news or read the headlines? There's nothing new under the sun. Do you see that God become man, Emmanuel, God with us, lived a fully human experience and not a pretty one? He didn't hold back from entering into the messiness and brokenness and ugliness of our world and of our lives. The the great German church reformer Martin Luther wrote this about Matthew chapter 2. If we Christians would join the wise men, we must close our eyes to all that glitters before the world and look rather on the despised and foolish things, help the poor, comfort the despised, and aid the neighbor in his need not because that's just a noble thing to do during Christmas season, not because it makes us maybe feel a little bit less guilty if we're indulging in excess, but because this is what God become man experienced in His full humanity. Behind this whole account, there's spiritual hunger. There's a searching after real hope. There's a curiosity about God's salvation plan, and that leads us thirdly, to the hope for the nations. One way to summarize Matthew chapter 2 is with a question. Who's the real king? Herod's violence flows out of insecurity. He's desperate to do whatever he can to protect his power. But the real king cannot be stopped in his rise to power and The real king does not simply rule over a little piece of the eastern end of the Mediterranean within the entire Roman Empire. He is the Lord of the nations. Matthew's gospel in its entirety is written to demonstrate especially to the Jewish people. That's why he has so many Old Testament references. He goes back to Old Testament prophecy to show that this Jesus is the Messiah. He has fulfilled all of these predictions. He is the true Son of David. He is the ultimate King. And yet, as Matthew's Gospel will demonstrate over and over, this Messiah is largely rejected by His own people. Not so shocking then that at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the first worshipers of this King of Kings, Luke tells us were actually the shepherds. But then Matthew's gospel tells us were a handful of pagan astrologers from a distant land. Amazing that the, the early audience of the Messiah were Gentiles of Gentiles. You couldn't have. Picked a, uh, a farther example of people from the heart of the Old Testament promises. Listen to another Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah chapter 60, the first few verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come into your light. And kings, to the brightness of your dawn, lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar. Your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming, the praise of the Lord. It's a picture of human history coming to its climax. The nations will come and they will bring treasure to recognize your kingship. This is Jesus born in humility to a nobody teenage girl in scandal, in obscurity. He is the Lord of the nations. It doesn't matter what your background is, whether you're proud of it and want to brag or whether you're ashamed of it and want to hide. It doesn't matter what your last name is, who your ancestors are, whether you're literate or not, whether you are even quite a moral person or not. Jesus has come to save sinners, to rescue the hopeless, to make beautiful What the world would call ugly, and what you might even look in the mirror and find not so pretty. Jesus is here to make all things new. Who's the real king? The passage makes it clear it's not Herod. But there's a more important lesson at the heart of Christmas that we all need to learn or remind ourselves of. Neither is the real king you or me. Only one can sit on the throne. Only one has the right to demand absolute loyalty and obedience. So as you feast, as you exchange gifts, as you enjoy some time off from work or school, will you acknowledge and, and trust the unique and total and eternal kingship of this Messiah? Will you submit your life to Him as a willing servant before a Lord? Will you joyfully receive His greatest gift of salvation during this season? His gift is Himself. Jesus has come in a humility and Jesus will come again in glory and power. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at these eternal truths that you revealed in human history. We marvel whether they're familiar to us or whether we're hearing them for the first time because the Spirit is opening ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray, Father, that Jesus' name, the Lord saves, would become more and more a reality this week. Even this day, as many bow their knees before the Christ child and recognize that there is no other worthy of praise. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.